So Hope Church has always been an outward-focused church. We've always thought about the people who aren't here yet. And one of the reasons we do the three gifts is because it's easy for us to look at our own needs. I mean, obviously, Dave mentioned we have a deficit going on. And it would seem like, well, the wise thing, the smart thing to do is to look after our own, ourselves and our own budget in that. And what we realize is that we have to be a church that's always looking out to our community, to serve our community in word and deed. And one of the most powerful ways we're able to do that is through our three gifts that we do every Christmas. So that's not going to change. Um, just because 2020 has been a difficult year doesn't mean that we're going to pull in, circle the wagons and say, well, you know, maybe next year. We're saying, no, we got to keep doing what, what God's called us to do. And it's to reach out to these, these ministries that are doing great work uh, and to help support them during this time. And that's what we believe we as a church and we as Christians should be doing during this time is reaching out, not pulling in. And it's easy to pull in. It's easy to think of our own needs and what we're going through. But we have to think of the other people that have it probably far worse than we do. And so that's why we do that. And that leads me to what we're going to talk about this weekend. We're going to talk about this idea of prayer. Think about the last time that you prayed for somebody. Let me just say this right off the top. That when, you, when you're talking with somebody, whether it's on the phone or you're in person, and you say to the person, they're sharing with you something that's going on, and you say, well, I'll pray for you. You know what I started doing a number of years ago? Instead of saying, I'll pray for you, I stop and I say, let's pray about it right now. I want to encourage you to do that. I want you to, to encourage you that the next time that you're on the phone, you have a conversation with somebody, you're, you're with somebody, and they're sharing something that's going on. Instead of saying, I'll pray for you, say, well, let's pray right now. But how do we normally or how do we usually pray for people? Well, we usually pray. We pray for their needs or maybe we pray that if they're sick that they be healed. And, you know, those are all legitimate and important prayers. Uh, but let me give you a good outline for prayer. For some of you, you, you've heard this before. You've seen this acrostic before. But let me just walk you through it because it's always good to be reminded of what, a good, what our prayers should have, you know, what, what is a good balanced prayer. Number one, we begin with adoration. We acknowledge God. We acknowledge he, His greatness, His awesomeness. And I know that word awesome is used for everything. Yeah, I got, a, I got this for Christmas. Awesome. No, God is awesome. <laughs> anyway, see His confession that, that when we acknowledge how great God is, like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, where he says, woe is me. <laughs> it immediately went to confession when he saw how great God was. And then Thanksgiving, you know. Thanksgiving isn't something we do just one time a year. and We sit around and we say, I'm thankful for this and I'm thankful for that. It says uh, we ought to be thankful at all in all situations for all things. And in a sense, Paul's saying we can have a thankful attitude no matter what our circumstances are. And then finally, the one that we generally go to first is supplication. We pray for people and certainly it, it, we're commanded in Scripture to pray for people. So that certainly is something we should be doing. So what are some ways that we are encouraged to pray in Scripture? Well, we're, pray, we're, we're encouraged to pray for provision. It's in the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, give us this day our what? Daily bread. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, but just give us today what we need, okay? So we, put, we pray for provision in Matthew 6, 11, the Lord's Prayer. We pray for protection. We pray for protection, and protection is a great thing to pray for. 
Uh, and that's also in the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer of protection. It's great to pray for. Don't you, as parents and grandparents, don't you pray for that? A hedge of protection around your kids and your grandkids. You pray that God will watch over them, right? That's a great prayer to pray. Or sometimes we have a prayer of deliverance, and, and we often pray that prayer when we're, in, you know, we're sliding on the ice and ready to go off the ro road, and we say, Lord, help! You know, uh, The psalmist puts it this way, the righteous cry out. And I've cried out sometimes like that. And the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. So praying for deliverance is certainly a great thing to pray for, isn't it? And then guidance. Guidance is a great thing to pray for. And we all need guidance in our lives. And as you read the book of James, James, who is the uh, bro brother of Jesus, uh, he, he, he says this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and you, it will be given to you. So some of the things, sometimes the first thing we ought to say and when we're, at, we're kind of befuddled with what we should do is say, God, what do you think, how should I approach this? What should I say? What should I do here? And then we talked about this Thanksgiving. For Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And what we're going to look at this weekend is we're going to look at Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is very different than how we often pray. So if I could say, sometimes we pray, um, and again, it's not, I'm just trying to think of how we ought to be praying for people. Because I think we're praying on very need-based level. And I understand that, but I think sometimes we need to pray deeper for people. I think we need to pray for deeper things for people. Because if we help them get to a deeper level with God, then these surface levels will take on the right perspective. And sometimes these surface things become like the little nappy dogs that keep barking, barking, barking. And we never really get to this below the surface to what's really going on there. And Paul really does that. Um, so Paul is, the passage where it is in Ephesians, if you want to turn there, Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start about verse 13. Uh, verse, Ephesians 3, verse 13. And Paul is writing to the churches in, in uh, Asia uh, Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. And he's going to give them some direction on how to pray. Now, well, actually, we're going to learn how to pray as he prays for these churches, these Christians in modern-day Turkey. We want to listen to what he prays. And we want to learn from him. So let's look, at those, let's look at those prayers. But let me read you the passage. This is Ephesians. Um, excuse me. Ephesians uh, 1, uh, 3. He says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that being rooted and established in love, you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep 
is the love of Christ. To know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And then he, he, he closes this with, a, with a blessing. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that it is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, how can we pray for others? Three, three things that I draw from this passage. Number one, we can pray that they would experience the presence of God. So Paul is praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. He says, I pray, Father, that Christ would dwell in their hearts. Well, he already does. <laughs> Christ already does dwell in their hearts. Um, that's taught in the New Testament. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, uh, let me read a couple of verses in context, and we'll get to the verse that uh, you have up on the screen. He says, if you love me, this is Jesus speaking, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Now, it's interesting, in the Greek language, there's this verse, other, uh, and so sometimes it means another, uh, another of uh, the similar kind or another of a different kind, and it has those two distinguishing things. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to send you another comforter, and we know him to be the Holy Spirit, right? The third person of the Trinity. And what Jesus is saying is theologically pretty significant. He's saying, I'm going to give them someone just like me, another one just like me. And so he says that. He says, I'm going to pray to the Father, and he will give you another advocate or comforter to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it, it, it neither sees him nor knows him. But notice what he says here. He says, but, no, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus is essentially saying is, I'm going to go away. I have been with you, but I'm going to give you another comforter just like me. And he won't be with you like me. He will dwell within you. That's quite different, isn't it? In Romans chapter 8, it says this, and Paul makes a, a theological statement here. He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So Paul's basically saying is, if you don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. What does Scripture say? The Scripture says the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the other advocate that Jesus is talking about. So Paul is praying that we would um, experience the fullness of God and that every Christian um, has Christ dwelling in their hearts. So why would he pray for something that we already have? Why would Paul pray for something that we already have? Let me ask you a question. Let's just say that you have like a lot of money in the bank, millions of dollars in the bank. I mean millions of dollars in the bank. You have so much money you don't have to, you'll never have to worry about money again. I mean just, you just have it. But you live in a van, homeless, barely scraping enough for food. You have not good clothing. You know, if you have heat, on a day like today, you know, you're, you're doing well. You, you just, you just, 
And, and I know what you're thinking. You're going, wait, 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 time out. You just said you have millions of dollars in the bank. How in the world would you let yourself get to a condition where you're living in a van without heat and you're, you have bar- barely enough food and your clothing is ratty? And you, you, how, wh- how could that ever happen? And the answer is this. Money in the bank doesn't do you any good until you take it out. And what Paul's saying, and what, you know, what Jesus is saying, you have this, this bank account, millions and billions of dollars. It's not money. What he's saying is you have the presence, the power of God. And what Paul is praying for is that the people in Asia Minor that he's writing to, and us today, as we look at his letter, he's saying, I want you to experience the presence and the power of God that's already dwelling in you right now you're millionaires paul's telling us that we need we have everything that we need because of his glorious riches see here's the point many christians have chosen and are choosing to live in spiritual squalor even though they possess the very presence and power of god that they have You live in fear, you live in anxiety, you live in worry, you live in all of these things. And Paul says, but do you not know that the presence of God dwells within you? Why don't you pull out your bank book and pull some of that out? Jesus says, I will never leave you, I will always be with you. Jesus says, I'm not going to let you walk alone to his disciples. I'm going to give you another comforter. And he said to us for future generations, and they will have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we have this, but yet we choose to live as spiritual squal- in spiritual squalor. Paul says, I pray that they would know the power and presence of God in their lives. Well, have you ever prayed that for somebody? who's going through a difficult time, they're, they're struggling, they, they need wisdom, they need, and, and what we tend to do is we say, God, fix their, pro- their circus problem. When in reality, the greatest thing we could pray for them is, I, God, I pray that through all of this, through these circumstances, I pray that they would experience the pres- your presence and your power in their lives. Because in the end, that's what we need the most. So that's the first thing he prays for. The second thing he prays for is that, uh, and, and we could pray for others, is that we pray that they would remain rooted and grounded in his love. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be rooted and, uh, rooted and grounded or established in his love? What does that mean? Well, you know, you think about a plant, or think of a tree, and uh, these trees, and many of them shoot their roots, they shoot their roots down in the soil for a couple of reasons. One, is they're getting nutrition from the soil, right? And so they put their roots down and the roots develop. And if the root system goes bad, the tree goes bad. And so their roots go down. But the second reason their roots go down into the soil is so that when the storms come, they can stand. They need it for, for security and for strength and for nourishment, for all of those things. And so being rooted and established is essential for long-term health, not just when life is going well, when the circumstances are favorable, 
things go to pot, when things go crazy, that's when we need those roots to go deep so we can draw the nourishment of God's encouraging word and the strength that we need through those times. This is, I think, what the psalmist is getting at. Notice what he says. This is Psalm 1. He says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, or take his seat in the company of mockers, but who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates in his, on his law day and night. We're going to talk more about this whole meditation on his law because I think that's something that Christians don't do. I think we hear of Eastern religions and meditation. We say, well, uh, it's not Christian. We'll talk about that in a minute. He says this, though. That person who meditates on the word of the Lord, he says that person will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, they prospers. It's a healthy tree because the roots have gone down. And basically what he's saying here is the person who meditates on the word of God, the, the person that understands the power and presence of God and meditates on God's love, the person that is taking that in on a regular basis, their roots go down, they're nourished spiritually, but they're all also strengthened. And then notice what he says. It's very dramatic in verse 4. Not so the wicked, not so the wicked. They are like chaff where the wind blows them away. That when storms come, when trials come, they fall apart. Have you seen that this year? I have. I've seen families. I've seen relationships. I've seen people just fall apart, struggle, and just have no hope. I've also seen this. I've seen lives that are standing strong. And are drawing nourishment and are going deeper with God because they're meditating on God's love for them. And they're drawing nourishment and they're drawing strength. See, when we're rooted and grounded in Christ, we will find nourishment during any drought. We will remain fixed during any storm. They will shake us, but they will not destroy us. That's kind of what Paul says, right? <laughs> I'm knocked down, but I'm not knocked out. I'm beaten, but I'm not dead. You know, he just, he just keeps bouncing back. A building will not stand long without a good foundation, will it? Um, it may look strong, but when the storms come, it creates a problem. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So he goes through the whole Sermon on the Mount. The last thing that Jesus says is this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, think of meditation on the word of God again, is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the storms rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had a foundation on the rock. It's like the tree planted, it's a foundation. Uh, the, the house was built on a foundation like a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and it was a great crash. I hear, you know, when I hear that second part, Jesus says, if you build your life on me and you lay the foundation and you meditate on me and you know the power and presence of God and you know about my love, when the storms come, you will find nourishment and you'll find strength. Not so the wicked. You'll fall apart. You'll crumble. It'll be a disaster. 
empty. We're not going to be able to avoid the tears, the trials, and the temptations. But if we're grounded in the word of God, if we're meditating on his love, we will not be broken by them. This is the second great way to pray for people. You pray, God, I pray that they would understand your love, that they would would be grounded in your love, that they would draw nourishment and strength and security from your love. Paul gives us a third way that we can pray for others. We can pray that they would marvel and meditate on his love. We talked about this love now. Let's just, let's, just, let's just put it into practical application. How do we marvel and meditate on his love? Paul prayed that they would grasp God's amazing love. Um, it's only through the cross, though, that we can uh, really see uh, the expanse of his love, right? We have to go to the cross. The cross is a great place to begin meditating on the love of God. How much does God love me? Go to the cross. We're encouraged to meditate on something that we'll never fully grasp. Paul basically says, I want you to, to meditate. I want you to reflect on God's love. You'll never understand it. You'll never this side of heaven, probably the other side. You'll never come to a place where you completely understand God's love. It's one of those things that the more you dwell on it, the more you meditate on it, the more you reflect upon it, the more you'll come away and saying, how amazing, but I don't even get it yet. I, 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 don't, I can't grasp it. It's too large. Now, how do we meditate? As I said, we want to talk about that just for a minute. How do we meditate? Well, we, we're, we're not talking about an Eastern meditation. Because Eastern meditation basically says the problem with you is you don't know you're a God. That's essentially what Eastern meditation is. You haven't understood the Godness of you. Not that God dwells in you, but that you are a God. That's your problem. You haven't figured that out. You're part of the godness of the universe. And until you understand the godness in yourself, you're going to have problems. That's not what Christianity is. And that's kind of what Eastern mysticism basically teaches. Christianity says the problem is that you think you are God and you're not. (laughs) You think you're in control in your life and you're not. You think you know best and you don't. The problem is, you're not God, he's God, you're not. And we have to get that straight. We meditate on the God who dwells within us. It's very different than saying, you are God. We must meditate on his love. What do we meditate on? We meditate on four things that Paul gives us. How wide is his love? His His love spreads to all nations, all people groups. His love is not limited by distance. His love is not far from anyone. Jesus says, I will never leave you. I'm going to always be with you. You'll never be divided from my love. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. We are drawn to him by his love. He loves us, and he goes out and finds us. That's what Luke 15 is all about. The shepherd, remember the shepherd, he goes and he finds, he he counts his sheep, 99. Wait, didn't I have 100? And what does he do? He says he goes out and finds that one lost sheep. He never gives up. He never forgets. The book of Revelation says, You have redeemed us by the blood out of every tribe, people, and nation. No one is out of his love range. 
the love of God spreads far and wide. What's the point? His love is wide enough to embrace the whole world. There's no people group. There's no person. There's no nationality that's excluded. That, that was really, we talked a little bit about this last weekend. Uh, that's the, really the surprise of the New Testament. The Gentiles who were always on the outside, on the peripheral, outside the camp now are brought in. They're part of the church. They are loved too. Now, I don't know where you're at in your life if you feel like you've been excluded from the love of people around you, maybe your parents or your friends or your neighbors, or you kind of feel like you're on the fringe. I just want you to know that with God, you're not on the fringe. You're not on the edge. You're right in the middle of it. That God's love has reached down to get you, to find you. So he says, how wide? But he does, secondly, he says, how long? How long is the love of God? Jesus was abused, he was ridiculed, he was executed, he was abandoned by his friends at the moment of his greatest need. We're told that this was God's plan long ago, before the foundation of the world, it was promised that Jesus would come and give his life as a ransom for many. This was something that was long, long ago planned. Now, we light the Advent candle and we are celebrating Christmas in a little over a week. And what we're going to find is this. The rescue party of one came in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, but before the foundation of the world, it was planned. His love is long. And you know, I've said this before, and sometimes you, don't, I, you may not understand what I'm saying. When I say that God plays the long game, I mean it. That long ago, God had a plan for your life. Before you were even born, it says in Ephesians 1, we looked at that. Before the foundation of the world, God's love is long. His love is so long that it will never run out. There'll never be a time, there'll never be a day, there'll never be a, a limit to his love. His love will never run out. Number three, how high is his love? And this is what we're meditating on. This is what we're meditating on. How wide is his love? How long is his love? How high is his love? He, he has lifted, up, uh, lifted us up from the depths of our despair and given us a new and eternal hope. We, we look up and we find our hope in Him. His love lifts our hearts. And some of you have just grabbed onto this hope during this past year. You've, you've said, I have this hope that allows me to rise above my circumstances because God's love has lifted my heart. He's lifted my life. My hope is in the Lord. Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. His love raises us to a whole new life of hope. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I try to say this as often is you should walk with your head held high with hope no matter what your circumstances are because he loves you his love gives us hope think about this for a minute when you're struggling in your life and you just you just don't know what you're going to do and 
a human person, maybe a, a mom or a dad or a friend or a sibling comes alongside you and lifts your spirit. They give you hope. They help you. They listen to your struggles, but they encourage you along the way. Jesus does that. Paul basically says, I want you to understand that he's not just there to be there. He's there to come into your life and to influence your life, to give your life a life of hope. One more. How deep. On the cross, Jesus fell into the deepest hole. He cried from the cross, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we could be brought in. No one has ever gone down to despair so deep as Jesus when he hung on the cross. All alone. He suffered the internal depth of despair for us. Please understand that even those who were standing, his mother and, and, and friends of his mother and friends of him who were standing at the base of the cross did not understand what he was doing. They didn't say, oh, but Jesus, what you're doing is so important. It's so heroic. They thought, what went wrong? How could this happen? I was promised by the angels. I never expected my son to die like this. And Jesus, knowing the despair of those around him, was experiencing the despair of separation from his father for the first time in eternity. His love is deep enough to rescue even the worst of sinners. You may be listening, you may be watching, you may be in this room right now. And you go, but you don't know what I've done. No, I don't, and Jesus does. And you know what? It's insignificant compared to the depth he went for you. His grace is enough. Paul writes it this way, incredible verse. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present the present or the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of, 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 love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where are you at today? How are you praying for people? Now, again, not to say you shouldn't pray for healing and you shouldn't pray for finances and, you know, the needs of sicknesses and, you know, different things like that. But have you thought about praying deeper prayers for others? Father, I pray that they would, know, they would understand that the power and presence of God dwells within them and that they would make some, some withdrawals.
Father, I pray that they would understand how loved they are by you, that they would begin to meditate and, 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 and just reflect on, on your love in their lives and be overwhelmed by it. I pray, Father, they would go to the cross and see just how far you would go for them. I pray, Father, that they would be overwhelmed by your love. I pray they'd be buoyed up by your hope uh, because they know that you love them and you've given them this hope. You've lifted them up. And I pray that they would, they would know the presence of God in their lives. We, we ought, I guess what I'm saying is sometimes we want to pray, change their circumstances. And I think I understand that. I think a better way to pray is, God, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how things turn out, I pray this would be a time that they would understand your power and your presence and your love. That's what Paul prayed for the people that he was concerned about. And maybe that's what we should be praying for the people that we're concerned about. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you that we as followers, as your followers, as Christians, have your indwelling presence. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. May we be amazed daily by your love. May we reflect upon it. May we meditate on it. May we come to a place where we never really understand it but we marvel at it. every time we look at it we marvel at it over again and father for some of us who are struggling right now to feel your love may we go to the cross because there your love is laid out for all to see thank you jesus that you willingly went to the cross that it was a plan that was laid out long before eternity and you willingly carried it out perfectly. And because you were rejected, we are accepted. Because you gave your life, we live. Because you died, we have hope. Just like you rose, so too will we. Thank you, Father, for this hope that you give to us through your word. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.